0: You are now listening
1: to Corrupted Hearts Podcast. Get ready to dive deep into crime, conspiracy, and all things corrupted. Hi, friends, welcome back or welcome to Corrupted Hearts. I'm your host, Brooklyn, and I'm so excited to be putting out another episode for you today. This is episode five, and we are going to go on an absolute roller coaster. Before we get started with the episode, I want to remind everyone about the Corrupted Hearts Instagram. It is at Corrupted Hearts Podcast, and you can also find it in the show notes down below. You can send the Instagram a DM for case suggestions or anything else you would like to hear on the podcast. I will take a look at all the suggestions and you could potentially see your suggestion in a future episode. So head over to the Instagram, give it some love. I post pictures from each episode over there, so go check it out. And thank you so much to my continuous listeners, and welcome to all of my new ones as well. I can't wait to continue making content for you guys to enjoy, but without further ado, let's get into The Son of Sam. Today, we're taking it back to the 1970s, to New York City's wildest crime spree. While the entire city was rocked by this, three of New New York City's boroughs were stunned by random attacks and murders. The whole country watched in horror as New York was seemingly falling apart at the seams. New Yorkers were left to just wait until the next strike. This is the case of the Son of Sam killer. On July 29, 1976, the killer attacked their first victims in Pelham Bay area of the Bronx in New York City. 19-year-old Jody Valenti and 18-year-old Donna Loria had just finished dancing the night away at the disco. After returning to Jody's Oldsmobile, the girls were unwinding after their night of fun. They drove to Donna's family's apartment building not far from where Jody lived and parked out front. Donna's parents were just arriving home and exchanged a few words with the girls before telling Donna to come up soon and inviting Jody in. Jody declined, and before Donna was going to head up, the girls stayed chatting in the car about the summer and how they were going to spend it. Both girls were interested in health care, and that brought them closer together. Jody was in nursing school, and Donna was studying to be an EMT. The girls went on talking for around 15 minutes before a man walked up near their car and shots began to ring out. Donna was shot once in the back, killing her instantly, and Jody was in immense pain from a shot to her thigh. Jody was left in absolute shock while her friends sat dead beside her as she watched as a man walk quickly away from the scene. Jody was able to describe her attacker, a white male, around 5'8 and roughly 200 pounds. She went on saying he had dark, short, curly hair. Jodi Valenti was deeply scarred by this experience, but remembers it so well. She found herself unable to get in a car at night for over six years after she was shot alongside her friend Donna. She also struggled with sounds of fireworks or anything that resembled the sound of a gunshot. New York City was disco central back then. Chody remembers how everyone was out at discos and clubs dancing their nights away without a care in the world. On October 23, 1976, two more victims were shot. Twenty-year-old Carl DeNaro finished up a night out at the bar with friends and met up with 18-year-old Rosemary Keenan. The two were hanging out in Carl's car in a residential area of Flushing and Queens. Carl was a Citibank security guard at the time, and Rosemary was a Queens College student. They were simply enjoying the remainder of their night together when gunshots shattered the car windows. Rosemary suffered superficial wounds from the glass shards, but Carl was shot in the head. After realizing what was happening, Carl started the car and sped away from the scene, not realizing how badly wounded he was. Police later speculated that Carl was attacked because he had shoulder-length hair and was mistaken for a woman. Carl eventually needed a metal plate put in his head to replace part of his skull due to the gunshot wound. He considers himself one of the luckiest guys in the world, even though he now has a metal plate in his head and limited vision. Carl DeNaro believes that the attacker did not act alone. November 27, 1976 The attacker strikes again. Two teenagers, 16-year-old Donna Demasi and 18-year-old Joanne Lamino, were on their way home from a late-night showing of a movie in Floral Park, Queens. The two stopped in front of Joanne's building and began talking. A man dressed in military fatigues approached the girls and asked them for directions, but then quickly pulled out a revolver from his waistband and shot both teens once. Donna Demasi was shot in the neck but didn't suffer any permanent injuries. Jovanna Lamino was shot in the back and ended up paralyzed. She was then bound to a wheelchair. At this time, no one believed that there was a serial killer going around and killing and attacking people. The story didn't get a lot of press because of this. Connections with these killings and attacks were just not being made. January 30th, 1977. Another attack and another murder. In Flushing, Queens, John Deal, 30 years old, and his fiancée, 26-year-old Christine Freund, were sitting in Deal's car when gunshots rang out. John Deal panicked and sped the car away. John suffered minor injuries, but his fiancée Christine was shot twice and later died in the hospital. Like the attacks before this, there didn't seem to be any motive, but the police were catching on to the fact that these crimes could be connected all the victims had been attacked using 44 caliber bullets and that the attacker had been targeting young women with long dark hair. Things seemed to be finally coming together and police said that they were looking for multiple different suspects. On March 8, 1977, he killed again. 19-year-old Virginia Voskerichen was walking back home from taking night classes. Virginia lived in the same neighborhood that Christian Freund was attacked in in Flushing, Queens. She was shot in the head and died instantly. Police believe she was killed by the same 44 bulldog revolver as the other victims. April 17, 1977, the killer makes contact with the police for the first time. Early in the morning, 18-year-old Valentina Suriani and her boyfriend, 20-year-old Alexander Esau, were sitting in Valentina's car in the Bronx. When both of them were shot twice. Alexander died at the scene and Valentina later died from her wounds in the hospital. For the first time since all of these attacks and killings began, the killer left a handwritten note at the scene for the police with his name. He referred to himself as the son of Sam and promised that these killings would continue. On May 30th, 1977, a handwritten letter from someone claiming to be the killer was received. Jimmy Breslin, a Daily News columnist, received a handwritten letter from someone who claimed to be the son of Sam Killer. The letter mentioned one of the first victims, Donna Loria. The writer warned Jimmy Breslin, saying, You cannot let people forget her, either. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad, and he won't let me stop the killing until he gets his fill of blood. This letter was signed, Son of Sam. This letter was handed over to the police by the Daily News, and ten days later, a redacted version of it was published. This became the best-selling issue that they had ever had, selling over one million copies. With reports saying that the killer was after young women with long, dark hair, women all over New York were cutting their hair and dyeing it brighter colors. June 26, 1977, a couple is attacked outside of a nightclub. Seventeen-year-old Judy Placido and twenty-year-old Sal Lupo had just left a disco in Bayside, Queens. They were sitting outside in Lupo's car and both were shot. They both survived their injuries and Lupo told police that minutes before they were shot, they had been talking about the Son of Sam killer. Then they became victims themselves. July 31, 1977, the killer attacks his first ever blonde victim. Twenty year old Robert Violanti and nineteen year old Stacy Moskowitz were on their first date and just having a conversation in Robert's car. The two were then both shot, ending their night of fun. Robert ended up losing his left eye but survived. However, Stacy was not so lucky. She died eighteen hours later in the hospital after succumbing to her injuries. This was the first attack and murder that took place in Brooklyn and Stacy was also the first victim with blonde hair. Eyewitnesses came forward days later and spoke to police about a man carrying what looked to be a gun around minutes before the shootings took place in Brooklyn. Other officers had also been seen riding parking tickets that night near the area. One of the ticketed cars was found to be that of David Berkowitz. Berkowitz was already being investigated due to complaints of harassment from a neighbor. August 10, 1977, an arrest and a confession. The police waited outside of the 24-year-old David Berkowitz apartment building in Yonkers, New York. The police had already investigated his car and found a rifle in the back seat. They also found maps of the crime scenes and ammunition. When Berkowitz exited his apartment, he got into his car and the police immediately sprung into action. He was arrested sitting in his car a bag was seated next to him, containing the forty-four caliber, caliber revolver. Berkowitz smiled, looking at the arresting officer, and said, You got me. The following day, on August 11th, Berkowitz confessed to all of the attacks and murders, saying he was possessed by a demonic spirit named Sam. He claimed Sam was speaking to him through his former neighbor's black Labrador. Berkowitz also admitted to setting 1,500 fires around New York City. He was 23 years old at the time of his first murder. May 8, 1978, Berkowitz dropped his insanity plea and pleaded guilty to six murders. He was sentenced to 25 years to life for his crimes. To this day, he has been denied every time that he attempts to be paroled. After Berkowitz was arrested, he claimed that he was part of a cult that helped him in carrying out these horrible crimes. The police never found any evidence that supported his cult claims, but many today still believe that Berkowitz did not act alone in this. A retired New York Police Department detective, Jim Rothstein, worked on the Vice Squad during the Son of Sam killings. He investigated that most of the violent crimes that happened in New York during the 70s were satanic cult-related. He believed that David Berkowitz didn't do all of the killings. Rothstein told the reporter, Once they locked up Berkowitz and blamed him for everything, they said that it was done. But Berkowitz was just the guy who took the rap. It It was a much bigger thing. Ultimately, David Berkowitz, whether he acted alone or not, was sentenced to six consecutive 25 years-to-life sentences. Upon hearing the judge's decision, Berkowitz attempted to jump out of the window of the courtroom. Berkowitz talked frequently of how devils, demons, and possessions drove him to do what he did, but after several psychological evaluations, he was considered competent each time. Throughout the years he has been in prison, Berkowitz has taken back the story about his neighbor's dog being possessed by Sam and called it a silly hoax. He also made statements about he how he was a member of a satanic cult that orchestrated all of these attacks and murders. He said that he took part in it along with other cult members, John and Michael Carr, both of them brothers. David Berkowitz's has even become an evangelical Christian during his time in prison. He now prefers to be called Son of Hope instead of Son of Sam. Although he isn't allowed on the internet, his supporters run a page for him. On his page, he wrote an apology to all of the victims and their families, along with saying, I was once a prisoner, but now I am free. In 1996, Yonkers police reopened Berkowitz's case, but it has since been suspended, but still remains open. While in prison, he has continued to write journal essays. He writes about his faith and repentance, and also contributes to school-based projects for psychology, criminology, and sociology students. This helps the students learn more about the criminal mind and the criminal justice system. David Berkowitz is still serving his sentence in a Yonkers maximum security prison. Laws have been passed in several states, including New York, that prisoners cannot make money off of their stories. This is because David Berkowitz gained a lot of media attention and offers for his story. People were amazed at his talk of demonic possession and at his ability to elude the police for so long. He had been offered large amounts of money to share his story, and this is why these laws had been passed. These laws are sometimes called the Son of Sam laws. Because of these, Berkowitz has not received any money from people using his story or from him sharing it himself. These crimes committed by David Berkowitz will forever go down in New York history, as some of the most horrific crimes committed there. This was an extremely scary time for those who lived there at the time and will forever live in their minds. Berkowitz will remain one of the most notorious serial, serial killers in New York and is certainly paying the price in prison today. Many still believe that he did not act alone and that will haunt them for the rest of their lives. Families of the victims will also have to live with these thoughts and also the pain of losing or watching their loved ones go through this. This was an extremely upsetting and scary time in history, but I felt like it was 100% worth talking about. I have read and heard so much about the Son of Sam killings and wanted to give you as listeners a chance to also be educated about it if you have not already. I thoroughly enjoy researching and writing about these cases, but it can also be very upsetting. This one involves so many people, and I just hope that the families and victims were able to find some sort of peace throughout the years. That is the end of this case, though, and I hope that you enjoyed it, despite the sadness of it. I love putting out content for you guys, and I really want to be more involved with you as well. Corrupted Hearts has an Instagram page and a Twitter now. The Instagram is at podcast, and the Twitter is at podcast. Both of these handles will be down in the description for you to find, go and give them a follow, and I will post pictures about each episode, as well as put updates about the podcast out on those as well. You can also send me requests for things that you want to hear on the podcast itself. I will look through any suggestions, and you might just hear what you suggested in a future episode. I want to thank everyone who listens to Corrupted Hearts. This is my baby, and I'm trying to get it to grow, so any little bit helps. Please don't hesitate to reach out on the social medias. I want to connect with you guys and put out content that you want to hear. Again, thank you so much for listening. Have a great rest of your day, night, wherever you are. And I will see you again in the next episode of Corrupted Hearts.